If you don't know if this is your first time here or you're just, you've been here but you don't know who I am, which is totally fine, uh, my name is Ricky Ragone. I am the music and arts and youth pastor here at the church. And uh, we're just going to continue pressing on in Luke as we do from week to week. So hopefully if you are, uh, if you had your Bibles open for the scripture reading, you're already to Luke chapter 9. But if you shut them, we're in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 27. Um, that's where we'll be, we'll be spending our time this morning. But before we get to that, as always, we just want to recap and, and bring us through to how we got to where we are today for context and understanding. So over the past nine chapters in this series, we have seen Jesus demonstrating uh, his power and the authority of who he is, whether it be in what he teaches or, or through the various miracles he's done. None of those miracles are just done to wow people, right? They're, they're meant to show them that Jesus is not an ordinary teacher. He's not an ordinary man, an ordinary carpenter, but he is the one and only son of God, the God-man, deity in the flesh, the king of the eternal kingdom. And none probably recognized this more than his close disciples as they witnessed all these things unfold firsthand. I can only imagine what it would be like to be on the boat that they were in and feel the, the terror of the raging seas. I get into a, a canoe and feel like I'm going to go down. Like I couldn't imagine being in those, those, those seas. But then to, to be there when, when Jesus gets up and just quiets the sea with his power and his voice and says, be still, and it's still. And they even ask the question, who is this? That he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Jesus has power over creation. But not only does creation bow before Christ, we, we saw the story of, of the man filled with demons. They, they were many. They called themselves legion. And they had to beg Jesus not to... To make them depart into the abyss. They had to submit to Jesus' authority as, as some poor pigs met their demise instead as the demons went into them. Jesus was not the founder of PETA for sure. Let us not forget that Jesus' authority even worked in the most discreet of ways as we saw the woman who had a discharge for 12 years and in faith touches not, not Jesus' hand, not his arm, doesn't grab him, touches his robe, and he heals her in that moment. His disciples don't even recognize what happens. Jesus asks, who's touched me? Peter's like, Jesus, there's a lot of people around you. Somebody is bound to touch you. But he's like, no, I felt power go out. And this woman is trembling before Jesus. She falls at his feet because she knows that he has healed her. In front of this crowd, Jesus says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Immediately following that, Jesus heals Jairus' daughter who had, been, who had been declared dead. They gave up hope. They said, Don't bother Jesus. She's dead. But they go, and people are weeping, and Jesus says, Don't weep. She's just sleeping. People, it literally says they laughed when he said this. Like, what is he talking about? We know what sleeping looks like. We know what dead looks like. She is not sleeping. But Jesus says, child, arise. And her spirit returned to her and she got up at once. Jesus has the power over death. Jesus shows, that, shows us that he dictates who has power and authority as he sent his disciples out to do the work of the ministry. And he gave them the power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom and to heal. And a couple weeks ago, we saw Jesus feed 5,000 plus people, maybe even more with, it says 5,000 men. It's more if you include women and the children with only five loaves of bread and two fish with leftovers. Jesus has authority over everything, over nature, over demons, over medical ailments, over life and death, over food, and even our ability to share his kingdom with others. Jesus asked his disciples after they witnessed all of this, he says, who do the crowds say that I am? 
We saw this last week. They tell him, well, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say a prophet of old has risen. But Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, the spokesman, Pope, uh, perks right up. He says, the Christ of God. Peter recognizes Jesus as the anointed Messiah, but still doesn't fully grasp what Jesus' mission was. And Jesus charges them to say nothing because the Son of Man, as he says last week, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus is starting to focus his attention and his disciples' attention on the pinnacle of his incarnation, going to the cross of Calvary, willingly becoming propitiation for sin, bearing the wrath of God to save mankind from the curse of sin. Not merely dying, but conquering death itself through the resurrection. That's what he's pointing them to. Knowing that he would endure and what it would cost him, he proceeds to tell the disciples the cost of what it means to truly be his follower. And that's what we are looking at today together in verses 23 through 27. So we'll be looking at it. Really, each verse is a point at this point, except the last two are combined together. But deny, take up, and follow. The gospel, uh, disciple of Christ is lose their lives willingly. Sacrifice worldly gain, and then we'll look at the cost of rejecting Jesus as we look at the last two verses. And I think it's important to, before we jump right into the text, that it's important to, to recognize that these words, these, these things Jesus has to say, they're not boxes to check off, like I need to do A, B, C, and D, and then I can be a follower of Jesus. They're not, they're not things to do to receive our salvation. All these things are, are what should happen as a result of salvation, as a result of being a follower of Christ. They are indicators of sanctification. They're not prerequisites for justification. Justification is that, that declaration, that one-time declaration of being declared not guilty before God because We've put our faith in Christ who paid the penalty for our guilt. Sanctification is our progressive walk in growing in godliness and looking like Jesus, which is a lifetime process. So if these marks of being a follower of Jesus, I think if they were summed up in a statement, it would be as John the Baptist says, he must increase, but I must decrease. That's what I th- All these are showing us that our will, our ways, everything in us must decrease. He must increase. So the more we spend time following Jesus, the less this life should be about us and the more it should be about him. So I think that's what these statements are communicating. So with that said, let's take a look at verse 23. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, in looking at this, the first question uh, I asked was, who is, who is Jesus telling this to? He was just talking to the disciples. Who is he telling this to? So my initial thought is, he's just continuing to talk to the disciples. But there's different gospel accounts, so I check Matthew. It says, Jesus told his disciples. I'm like, perfect. Confirms it. But let me check Mark. Then Mark 8.34 says, Then he, Jesus, called the crowd to him along with his disciples. All right, that's a little different, a little different audience. Then looking at the fact that Luke says, Then he said to all, and Mark says to the crowd and the disciples, I'm personally leaning towards that Jesus is addressing a larger group of people more than just his disciples. And the reason why I would think that is important or somewhat important is these things that Jesus says, it changes uh, the scope of, of who he's telling it to, which I think changes the scope of its, its application to some degree. But there are different perspective, uh, differing perspectives on this. Some people just 
straight up are like he's talking to the disciples. He was talking to the disciples. He's continuing to talk to the disciples. I don't think it's a major thing, but I think it shapes the context. That's conversation about Christ's suffering, being killed, as he just said in the previous verses. That was the disciples, but now he's, he wants others to come and hear because there are going to be other people following him besides just the twelve. People have been following him all over the place, chasing him around, chasing the miracle man, right? Jesus is letting everyone know, including the disciples, the cost of being his follower. So if you're going to call yourself my disciple, if you're going to come after me, these three things are markers of being my disciple. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. So that first one, deny, deny himself, deny yourself. This has to do with who's on the throne in our lives. Who is the, the king that rules over us? The default, default mode for most of us would be that we sit very comfortably on that throne. We want to be the king or queen. It's about our wants, it's about our wills, it's about our way. But if we are disciples of Christ, he must be on that throne. We can't share it. Like we're not squeezing in two people on one throne. It's Jesus' throne. So we either deny ourselves or we deny the authority of Jesus when we try to take the throne. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Diedrich Bonhoeffer says this. He says, self-denial is never just a series of isolated acts of mortification or asceticism. It is not suicide, for there is an element of self-will even in that. To deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self. To see only him who goes before and no more the road which is too hard for us. Once more, all that self-denial can say is, he leads the way, keep close to him, end quote. Denying ourselves means Jesus is first. His will is first. Not my will, but his will be done. As disciples of Christ, we're to be imitators of Christ. And, and who better lived out denying oneself than Christ personally? Philip Ryken, president of Wheaton College, he, he just put it in a really good way in his commentary, and it was just better to read what he had to say than try and think something or write something myself. But he shows us just how Jesus epitomizes this. He said, In becoming a man, Jesus denied himself the glories of heaven. In fulfilling the law, he denied himself the pleasures of sin. In dying on the cross, he denied himself protection from pain, not just physical pain, but also the spiritual anguish of being forsaken by his Father. Now Jesus calls us to deny ourselves so that we too may do the work that God has called us to do. It means saying, oh, that's an end quote. No, we're still in the quote. Sorry, there's a quote in there. This means saying no to sin, no to ungodly attitudes, no to unhealthy relationships, no to self-indulgent acquisitions, no to things that waste our time, and no to physical pleasures that sap our spiritual strength. Now end quote. Denying ourselves means putting our desires, our wills, our ways to the side and Jesus first. It's following his example. Putting aside the old man and walking as a new creation in Christ. Second thing that Jesus says, deny yourself and he says, take up the cross daily. This is probably a jarring statement for them to hear because, you know, we have a very different, I think, view of this phrase, take up your cross, because we have this image in our head of Jesus taking up the cross. This picture of an innocent Savior bearing his cross through the streets and up the hill to purchase our redemption. But those listening in that moment, they're just thinking of the criminals that had to, to, to bear this execution. This brutal way that, that Romans took care of business. Why would Jesus say we got to take up a cross? That seems extreme. 
And Jesus is pointing, one, to his inevitable crucifixion, but he's, he's also giving a strong image of the seriousness of what it is to follow him. And one day, they, they would witness Jesus bearing the cross, and this, this, this phrase would probably be resonating in their heads and going, this is, this is what he's talking about. But there's a seriousness to it. that Those carrying their crosses out of the city, they, they didn't carry them back in. They went out and they, they suffered the pain of being put to death on that cross. Being a disciple, is a, it means there's, there's no turning back. If you're going to follow Jesus, we can't be turning back. We're enduring the large, long, arduous road of suffering, just as Jesus did. This is much more than the, like, the, the insignificant, uh, mundane inconveniences of life. Like, oh man, I went to Starbucks and they were out of oat milk, so I had to get like, dairy milk. <sighs> I know, it's my... It's my cross to bear. Right? Jesus isn't talking about daily annoyances. That's just life. Follower of Christ or not. No, Jesus is telling us to bear our cross because we need to be prepared to suffer for his sake. As Jesus went to the cross, he was despised, he was rejected. For who he was in the gospel he preached, us taking up our cross daily is we too must be willing to suffer rejection and despisement for the sake of Christ and the gospel. And that comes with denying yourself. If, if we deny ourselves, then we're, then we're willing to follow Christ into that. And it says take up your cross daily. Daily ready to do that very thing. That's That's... That's big stuff. That's not light. Are we willing to take up our cross? And then the last part is follow him. This is the third verb Jesus uses in this statement. Deny, take up, follow. If we're not on the throne, if we're not leading, if we're not number one, then where do we look? Who do we follow? We follow Jesus. He's the leader. We follow his example of loving people selflessly. We follow his example of living first and foremost for the kingdom. We follow the words of his teaching. That means all of it, right? Many people want to follow like Jesus, like he's just a great example of love, but they reject Jesus when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. All of his words we follow. Not perfectly, obviously. I, would, I couldn't stand up here and say that. But that's, that's who we're, we're striving to follow hard after. Jesus is that, that lighthouse, right, that safely leads us to where we need to be. We need to look to him and follow him. I think of um, one time a few years back, uh, our family, probably not even our family, I don't think we had kids yet, but Katie and I, maybe my parents, we were traveling down for vacation somewhere. You don't need all the details. I don't know why I feel the need to say all that. But we were traveling, and we get to, it's a route that we take to Pennsylvania all the time, and then the Google decided to say, like, eh, you should stop what you're doing and up here take an alternate route. And we're like, Google's so silly. Why would we do that? We're going to stay the way we always go and because uh, we're smarter than the supercomputer that's going to take over the world. And um, sure enough, we're sitting on Route 222 in Pennsylvania in traffic going at a snail's pace. And I, if we just listened to Google Maps, if we just went the other way and didn't try to do what we thought was the smartest thing, we would not have found ourselves stuck in such traffic. But we are a people who like to follow our own way. And when we do that, we get stuck. Jesus needs to be the lead. That's why we're finite humans, and Jesus is the omnipotent God, and who knows all things, the sovereign God, omniscient. We need to follow his lead, even when it seems counterintuitive to our minds. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. The first part of what it looks like to follow Christ 
Next thing he says is verse 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus is building on what he had just said, right? He says for. He's continuing this thought. He's showing in another way what it means to live with Christ first. We can't follow Christ and and continue to hold on to the lives that we once lived and the the lives that that we want and our desires. I think of the words of the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Galatians where he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A heart transformed by the gospel means there should be a life transformed by the gospel. A life that reflects that transformation. The life we formerly lived needs to be a thing of the past. And just as we can't share the throne with Christ, we can't live split between two lives and two worlds. Now I say that knowing that's the tension we live in day in and day out, right? This is the battle of the flesh that we experience as the Spirit of God is changing our desires, but we're still struggling with the desires that we once had. We keep wanting to revert back to once was, but there's a voice of truth pointing us to the beauty of Jesus and true life of following Him. And we experience this life, we, this true good life, when, when we most getting confused on my words, but when we, we feel it most abundantly when we're no longer trying to cling so hard to the life that we had, but when we surrender it to Christ. And I, I remember doing uh, middle school uh, required summer reading. You guys remember that? That joy over the summer, like you're on summer vacation, but not really. Here's some books to hold you over. And one of the ones I had to read was Where the Red Fern Grows. Anyone read that book? Maybe you watch the movie. Usually you try to do that to make the summer reading. Like, yeah, no, I read it for sure. Um, but one of the things that, that just, I don't remember much from the book. Really don't even remember what the fern was. But I just distinctly remember this character, Billy. And he had to make a raccoon trap. And basically he drilled some hole in the wood, put some like nails in. And that way, and a shiny object. And when the raccoon would reach its hand in, it would grab the object, and the raccoon couldn't release it because it wanted the object. I guess it's just the way raccoons are wired. I don't know. I don't, I'm not in the mind of raccoons, but this is what the fictional book told me. And this book would, ho- the, this book, the raccoon would, would hold the shiny object, and so it couldn't pull its hand back out because there was these angled nails, so you would trap a raccoon in it. But if the raccoon would just let go of the object, its hand could slip back out. But the trap worked because that raccoon, the nature of the raccoon, would to not, be, to not relinquish the object that it had, and it would be trapped. And when it comes to our lives, we need to be smarter than a raccoon. We need to let go of the life we're trying to hold on to so tightly and release it and surrender it to Christ. We need to be willing to lose our lives so that we can have it in Christ. So what are we holding on to? What's that object? What's that part of the old life that we're trying to save? And what do we need to surrender to Christ? Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. A life lost to Christ is marked by a desire for his kingdom over our own. It's a life marked by the two greatest commandments, a love for God and a love for people. It's a life devoted to declaring and demonstrating the gospel in all that we do. Two, Two of the commentaries that I was using as I studied quoted a prayer from uh, the missionary Jim Elliott who gave his life on the mission field trying to share the gospel with tribal people in Ecuador. And this is the prayer that, that he, he said. He said, Father, take my life, yea, my blood, if thou wilt, and consume it with thine enveloping fire. I would not save it, for it is not mine to save. 
have it. Lord, have it all. Pour out my life as an oblation or offering for the world. End quote. That is the prayer of a man who is no longer trying to save his life, but willingly lost it to serve the kingdom of God. May that be our prayer. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Then Jesus asked this question, verse 25. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? It's a very pointy question. He's focused on his glorious eternal kingdom. What does it profit a man if he gains all there is in this life in this world, yet forfeits himself or his soul. If you spend all your time and your effort striving for more and more and more in this side of eternity, you're forfeiting eternal gain, eternal life with Christ. You're willingly surrendering yourself to eternal death. As Marty McFly says so much in Back to the Future, whoa, that's heavy. It is. That's a heavy thing. This is just a third example of Christ is given to show us that being his disciple, it's not as easy as just clicking follow as we're it's so used to on social media. There's a cost. We live in a world where the message is do all you can to achieve the most for yourself possible. For the greatest success, for the most pleasure. And it doesn't matter what it is, do what you want. Live your best life now. But are those things worth the price of our very soul? We're created as image bearers of God, body and soul, to worship Him, to live for His glory. That's where we find ultimate joy and fulfillment. But it was Satan who corrupted that with the lie all the way back in the garden when he convinced Adam and Eve that their pleasure in eating the fruit was better than their obedience to their creator. And today, we still believe that same sinful lie. We still chase the aspirations of the biggest house, the nicest car. We focus all of our energy into work and retirement. and We, we just want to have the best life we can, especially in the final years. And I'm not saying any of that's necessarily inherently bad, right? I'm not saying, like, if you have a big house, well, good luck in hell. Like, that's not what I'm saying. (laughs) Big houses, not bad. Nice cars, not bad. Retirement, wise, it's not bad. But it should all be held loosely and not clung to as ultimate things. should not be our pursuit in all that we do. If those are the pinnacle of your existence, those are idols. And the pursuit of idols, big or small, gain us nothing. We forfeit your soul. The true reward of our existence is knowing Christ and living for his kingdom first and foremost as we were created. It's hard to not think of the, the, the conversation that Jesus has with the, the rich young man. I think I brought this up the last time I preached, but it's just, it's relevant. Right? This young man, he asked Jesus, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells the young man, he's like, you know the commandments of God. And the young man says, yes, I've kept them from my youth. But in Mark 10, 21 to 22, Jesus says, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And he said, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And then later Jesus tells his disciples, it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, is it harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God because God has a no rich people policy? No. It's hard because who Jesus is talking about are people fully devoted to what they have. What they have is what what gives them value. What they have is what gives them identity. 
What they have is what, what brings them ultimate joy and satisfaction. That they want nothing else in its place. But when we respond to, to follow Jesus, he must become our identity. He must be our joy. We live for him. He is our pursuit. He is our prize. And everything else must be held with a loose hand, willing to lose it, right? Suffering for his sake, right? Willing to take up our cross and follow him. All these things, all the things of the world will fade. When we follow Christ, the, the, the things, the possessions, the worldly gain we're going for, things that we, we were once trophies for our glory, right, need to become resources and tools to be used for his glory. It changes from us to him. I must decrease, he must increase. And I love this word forfeit. As someone who's played sports my whole life, the word forfeit really sticks out because you don't want to do it. You just don't want to forfeit. Like, I'm not, I'm not just going to lose now. Like, let's at least play, and then I'll lose. But I want to fight. To forfeit something is to willingly concede to someone else or something else. And those who desire to pursue the riches and pleasures of this world are willingly forfeiting their souls. Think about that for a second. Mankind, the, 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 the creation, the piece of creation where God looks at, he says, it is very good. Right, we're image bearers of him. We're, we're the, the only thing that it says we are made in his image. And we're just willing to, to say, eh, I don't care about that. Give me more. I want more stuff that I can see, touch, feel, and taste. That's all better. I don't care about the Imago Dei. I don't care about being an image bearer. Give me more of the world. It's a sad thought. And before we're quick to think like, well, the person who would do that is just, ah, they are dumb. Let's remember that if not for the grace of God, we'd all be lined up like all those people at the new Chick-fil-A's that just went up, right? <laughs> we'd be lined up ready to forfeit our souls for the world if God's grace hadn't shaped us and changed us. It's by God's grace the Spirit opens our eyes to see the folly of the world's gain and the beauty of Christ. The, the Apostle Paul would be the first to admit that he wouldn't be able to say, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, if not for God's grace in his life. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Nothing. But what does it profit a man if he loses, uh, what does it profit a man if he gains Christ? Everything. Everything. We're willing to lose our life for Christ. We gain everything. But if we're seeking to profit and gain the whole world, we forfeit our very selves. If we know Christ, if we truly understand the truth of the gospel, we need to recognize that we can't be number one. And we're not on the throne. We need to be willing to suffer as Christ suffered. We are to be followers of him. We are to surrender our lives to him. And we are to surrender earthly gain. But then Jesus turns his attention from the cost of following to the cost of rejecting him. The cost of rejecting Jesus. Verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me in my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now when Jesus says ashamed, he's referring to just outright rejection. He's not talking about being a little timid, a little afraid to, to speak up and share the gospel. He means actually ashamed of his very being, his very person, and his words. And not just the red letter words, all the words, because all the scripture, this is the word of God. These are the words of Christ. They are his. So the person of Christ and the word of Christ, they cannot be divorced from each other. To reject one is to reject both. If Christ is the Word made flesh, God himself, then the words he says are authoritative. To reject his deity nullifies the authority of his teaching. 
and vice versa. If we're going to reject the, this book, then we're rejecting the authority and the deity that he, had, that he is. And the result of such shame, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he returns in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. When Christ comes again, no longer as the suffering servant, but as the conquering king, he will reject those who reject him. He will judge justly the living, in, the living and the dead. Like this, is, this is pretty hellfire and brimstone type stuff. Like For those who have no desire to deny themselves and they want to just stay on the throne of their lives and reject Christ, Christ says, I will be ashamed of you. I will reject you. Jesus' words, not mine. So those who want to cling to the comforts and the pleasures of life and not suffer, not take up a cross, there is eternal suffering. We want all the comforts here and now. There will be suffering later. Those who want to follow Christ but want to lead their own way will be led away from Christ's eternal kingdom. Those who want to save their lives will lose them in the long run. Those who seek to gain the pleasures and the riches of this world will gain eternal separation from God when he returns in his glory. And when Jesus says that, we're not there yet. Right? When I return to my glory, when I come again, we're not there yet. Which means it's not too late to repent and believe in Christ. This verse is a firm warning, but it's also a gracious warning. Right? Jesus is, is giving those listening a chance to evaluate their allegiance and their affections. Where are you at this morning? Christ came. He willingly was rejected by man so that we could have life through faith in him. Where is, where is our faith at this morning? Is it in ourselves? Is it in what we can gain? Or is it in Christ? Do we believe he is who he says he is or are we ashamed of all that he says that he is and we reject him? And I want to just reiterate this. Because if you're sitting here and you're, you're a believer, I don't, I don't want you to sit here and be like, man, I've been embarrassed to share the gospel before. I've been afraid to speak up when I should have uh, spoken up. I, I failed to step up when I needed to. <sighs> Christ would be ashamed of that. He's going to reject me because I did that. I think an awful lot of us, that's probably the case. We think of those moments. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about full-on rejection of who he is, never believed in him, would want nothing to do with him, of who he is and all that he says. And I think Peter's a clear example of why, great, uh, why Christ doesn't just reject those who deny him or don't speak up for him at a point in life. Right? Jesus denies him three times on the night of his betrayal. Does Jesus reject Peter and say, whew, you were ashamed of me three times, rejected for all eternity? No. Right? Peter is used for the building of the kingdom for the sake of the gospel. Peter is, is sanctified in his walk, and he goes from denying Jesus to being martyred for Jesus. He goes from denying Jesus to standing before the, high, the chief priest and saying like, uh, who do I listen to? I listen to you or I listen to God? For I cannot help but to speak of what I have seen and heard. I'm going to keep preaching Jesus. So what I don't want people th sitting here and thinking is that if you've, if you've rejected Christ because there's been times you haven't spoken up, that, that, there's, that means Christ rejects you. That's not the gospel. There's redemption. If our faith and trust is in him. Christ is talking here is rejection of him altogether. I want nothing to do with Jesus. I don't want anything to do with the gospel. I think it's, it's all a, a bunch of bull, and I want just none of it. That's the shame, the being ashamed that Jesus is talking about, and that's who he is going to reject. And that should 
break our hearts to know that there's people who are going to endure that and should propel us to mission, to share the love and the truth of that because that's the bad news, but the, that's why we have the gospel because the gospel is good news. That Christ doesn't want us to stay there and he's calling us to himself. And as Jesus gives the grim reality of rejecting him, he also gives hope to those listening that there are some there who will get a glimpse of his kingdom before they die. Verse 27, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now this last sentence says there's many different explanations that people have for what Jesus is talking about when he tells them this. Where they're standing there and they're going to see the kingdom of God before they taste death. Like I was shocked how many, I've always had just one thing in mind, but there's like people are like, well there's like four explanations for what Jesus could have meant. And I'm like, okay, well I'm more confused now that I opened up a commentary than when I was just reading this passage. But I will bring you into the confusion because um, that's, that's what I'm here to do. I'm supposed to make things clearer. But uh, I want to give the different explanations. They, they make sense. These are different ways that people have taken them. And I'll obviously tell you where I landed the plane. The first thing Peter think, uh, people think is that when Jesus says there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, he, he's alluding to the next, the next thing that we see happen in, in all the synoptic gospels, the Mount of Transfiguration. And he's referring to Peter, James, and John. And we'll see more of this next week. As they, they go with Jesus onto the mountain to pray eight days later, and then Jesus' appearance, it, it alters. His clothes become this dazzling white, and there's this appearing with him, Elijah and Moses, and this is amazing, spectacular event. And some commentators believe that Jesus is referring to this moment that, that these guys will get a glimpse of the kingdom of God before they taste death. Because in each synoptic gospel, the transfiguration happens. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus says that they will see the kingdom, and then there's the passage about the Mount of Transfiguration. The second thing that um, commentators think that it is pointing to is Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. Right, That all who witness Jesus' real resurrected body, which... Peter tells us in uh, 1 Corinthians, 12 disciples and Jesus appeared to even more than 500 brothers at the same time. Those people who witnessed the resurrected Jesus, which is definitely a glimpse at the kingdom, because we too shall be resurrected. Those who witness this, they're, they're seeing the kingdom before they taste death. Or those who, who witness Jesus ascend into heaven are getting this glimpse at this glorious uh, moment, and that is a glimpse of the kingdom. So we have transfiguration, we have the resurrection, the ascension. The third view is that the, this is seen in, in, at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit being given. Right, the apostles are given this power by, of the Spirit, and, and they're boldly preaching the gospel across language barriers. There's, there's healing, there's the tons of miracles happening, and it's all pointing people to Jesus. Acts 2 is this beginning of the apostles working to, to build the church. Christ is building his church, but they're being used to that end. And the gospel spreads from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to all the ends of the earth. And that this is the building of the kingdom and getting a glimpse of the kingdom. And that's what Jesus is talking about. And then there was the fourth one. That, that Jesus is alluding to the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. In Matthew 24, Jesus talks to his disciples about signs of the end times, and one of those things mentioned is that not one stone of the temple would remain standing on another. It would be destroyed. It's probably the least held view. It's pretty much always mentioned and then dismissed, so I probably don't think it's that either. And now if Jesus were only talking to his disciples, and this is where we come back to why I think it matters who he's talking to, if he's only talking to his disciples, that I could see him narrowing the scope of those disciples down to three of them and saying, but some of you would, will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. 
and that he narrows it down to Peter, James, and John, and it's the Mount of Transfiguration. But if he's, taking, if he's talking to a wider audience, then I think just speaking to three people in that wider audience I, I, seems odd. I'm inclined that it's a statement that could encompass all of these. Peter, James, and John, they're going to get a glimpse of the kingdom. They already have before they taste death. But those who witness the resurrection, the ascension, those who are, are witnessing the spirit at work in the building of the church are getting a glimpse of the kingdom of God before they taste death. So I think, I think it encompasses all of the first three. And, and even the fourth one points people to the kingdom and seeing the kingdom. But many of those people who we were talking to probably didn't make it to 70 AD. Only a few probably did. But those ashamed of Jesus in the gospel, right, those who reject him, they're, they're not going to see the kingdom because they are blind to who Jesus is and the work that he's doing. But those who would come after him, who would put their faith in him, whose eyes are illuminated by, the, illuminated by the Spirit, see the kingdom. And they see it before they taste death. Right? In a crowd, some would be in the rejection camp. In that crowd, some would be in the believing camp. Some would not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. I think Peter, James, and John get a greater glimpse because of who they get to witness in such transfiguration. But I don't think that's all Jesus had in mind. I don't know if that's technically a cop-out answer, but that's just how I see it. There are many who will witness the kingdom being built on earth before they taste death. But you can feel free in community groups to discuss that. That's, boom, I gave you a topic. Talk amongst yourselves. Um, getting a glimpse of the kingdom expanding and be established, that's the payoff for following Christ. Yes, being a disciple of Christ means you will have to deny yourself and get off the throne. Yes, being a disciple of Christ means you will need to daily be willing to say, this life isn't my own. I'm going to take on my cross. I need to be willing to suffer daily for Christ. Yes, being a disciple of Christ means that, we are, that he leads the way and that we need to follow him. Yes, being a disciple of Christ means we, we can't hold to the life that we once held to, that we have a new life with Christ in the front. And we need to be willing to lose it. Yes, being a disciple of Christ means that he is our ultimate gain and the things of the world aren't. But being a disciple of Jesus also means that we get to see his kingdom being built here on earth in one day in its fullness. And we don't only get to see it and witness it, but we get to participate in the building of it as we declare and demonstrate the gospel. And that's an amazing privilege. So yes, there's a cost to being a disciple of Christ, but there is great reward in the joy that it is to be a part of his kingdom. But that cost is truly a small cost compared to what Jesus endured for us. Right? He left the perfection of glory to live among fallen man. He became a man, took on flesh, was tempted by sin, but in no way ever sinned, he lived a perfect life, yet was still arrested and tried as a criminal, endured the scourging of Roman soldiers. He endured rejection by his own people who cry out, crucify him in place of the murderer Barabbas. Jesus had to carry his cross to the place of execution, is stripped of his clothing and his dignity, nailed to the cross, suffered and died an excruciating death physically, suffered the wrath of God being poured out on him for the sin of all mankind to pay the debt that we owe for sin. That's the cost that he paid for our souls. For the glory of the Father and to redeem lost sinners. Is that not a Savior worth trusting in? Is that not a Savior worth following and denying ourselves and taking up our cross daily and following? And suffering. I'll invite the band up as I know I'm well over my time, but we are going to respond by singing the song, The Wonderful Cross. Not one we typically do. has been a while. Hopefully it's familiar. And it sings of, of Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross and our response. The verses are the wonderful words of the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross.
Before we sing these words, let us hear them together read. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. We must decrease, he must increase. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you. We thank you for this text of Scripture. I thank you for this text of Scripture. Now it just opens our eyes to see how serious the call is in following Christ, but we recognize it is not anything more. It is far less than what Christ did himself. He is our greatest example, and I pray that you would give us the strength and ability to walk in a way that looks like Christ calls us to look. That you would help us to, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily to follow him, that you would help us, that you would give us and empower us with the ability to no longer cling to our lives, but to lose them willingly. To help us to put death, the, the, the desire for worldly gain, and to know the true life of Christ and living for your kingdom. I pray that if anyone here who has, has not taken that step in putting their faith in Christ and trusting him, that they would be moved by your spirit to do that no longer ashamed of who Christ is and his words, but, Father, that they would see the beauty of Christ and not experience his rejection, but experience his salvation this morning. I thank you for, for bringing us into your kingdom, allowing us to see it being built soul by soul. May your kingdom be the focus of our lives, that we would decrease, Christ would increase, and that we would receive all the glory it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.